And welcome to the latest episode of Data Unchained. I'm your host, Molly Presley. So if you have not heard the podcast and would like to know a little bit more about what the show is about, it's all about that the fact that the data access paradigms have changed as data has become increasingly more distributed, decentralized, and applications keep getting smarter and smarter. I mean, heck, we have Gen AI now, which people, I think, generally didn't even know what that was at the beginning of this year. So things are changing fast. And in today's decentralized world, getting data to the remote workers, the applications, the cloud models, the cloud regions um, that need the data is increasingly challenging. Data Unchained digs into both the challenges as well as the solutions to make data an asset as a global resource. And all of our guests are experts in this area. Today, I'm really excited to have Matt Fornito joining us. Matt is an executive AI advisor, and probably not a more timely time than now to be an AI advisor. Um, Thank you for taking time of your day to join the show, Matt. Thanks for having me, Molly. So tell us a little bit about you, maybe some of your personal background. Um, How did you get to the point where you're an AI advisor? Oh, goodness. Um... Yeah, so I had always been very people centric. Uh, I, when I was in undergrad, I had an acting degree in psychology and sociology degrees, focused a lot on business and communication as well. Um, continuous learning was so important to me, but also really understanding people, right? And that ultimately led into customer centricity of working at Walt Disney World and Target as a leader, and then going into a PhD program at Virginia Tech in industrial organizational psychology. And IO psychology really focuses on psychology of the workplace, right? How do you create more effective leaders, more uh, credible teams? How do you increase worker productivity, worker satisfaction, reduce employee churn? And so that had a very heavy statistical background encompassed in it. And I was fortunately recruited out as a data scientist after I ended the program And that led into a lot more additional work as a data scientist for a number (laughs) of companies, Sports Authority, if you remember them. But also Dish uh, had my own data science consulting firm, which was one of seven globally for NVIDIA at the time. And then the past about eight years, I had spent on the uh, sales side with um, VARs and solution integrators, really helping them build strategic practices around data around AI, around high-performance compute, because organizations are, I've been wondering, how do we scale this? How do we grow? How do we mature in this space? And so looking at this as an all-encompassing initiative, not just from the hardware side, but what's the software stack needed? What's the talent stack needed? What are the use cases that can drive that? And that ended up leading to um, between two different companies being number one and number three globally in sales with NVIDIA. And then um, took a, a chief data officer role for a while after that, and then recently started my own firm where I'm doing the same thing, right? Um, from Series C through Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies, um, really helping them look at how do we build uh, an enterprise data-driven culture, and how do we mature as an organization, and how do we adopt and adapt, adopt and adapt generative AI and regular like machine learning um, and deep learning strategies that help us make faster, better, and smarter decisions. In this podcast, we talk to a lot of folks who are on the data science, data engineering side. And I would say that's a 
somewhat mature market. And, you know, most organizations kind of understand those roles. Do you feel like AI is an extension of those initiatives or are they two different things? Is there kind of business intelligence and then there's AI? How do you think about that within an organization? So I would link AI as one, an umbrella term to encompass the machine learning, even robotic process automation, NLP, um, all the way through deep learning and large language models and what we're seeing with generative AI today. Um, but I would also say that AI is more of the the business aspect of that, right? If we look at, let's say, machine learning or large language models, they're processes or methodologies to accomplish solving specific problems, whereas AI is more of the strategic umbrella that drives these initiatives. Okay, that makes sense. So uh, let's take a step back and talk about being an AI advisor. What does that mean when you go into an executive staff and take on a project with them? Generally, what are you doing for them? It, it re- I think it really depends, right? There's Organizations that are hyper immature in the space, right? They can barely spell AI um, or, <laughs> or know what a large language model is. And then there's hyper mature organizations, right? That have those data driven cultures, right? And so how do we alleviate the gap from these hyper immature organizations and make them much more mature, right? And so the first piece of that really is around how do we create more effective leaders in regards to AI, and that's really contingent on these leaders understanding AI, right? Because no one's going to implement something if they don't understand it, right? The um, fear is going to be a big precursor that will uh, mitigate any sort of change, right? And AI is truly an innovative initiative. So it really starts with the executive level education and alignment on who are we as a company and where do we want to go, right? So coming in and helping drive that component and then starting to dissect on a tactical level, well, what are the use cases that are going to generate the greatest ROI, right? We don't even need to think about machine learning, deep learning, large language models yet. Everyone seems to lead with the processes and methodologies, but the reality is this should all stem from business. Everything within data and AI should stem from business needs, things that help customers things that help make employees more effective. And so it stems from that leadership side. It stems from identifying what are the use cases that are really going to drive change and create trust in data, trust in AI, then tactically approaching some of those to generate those wins. And that will segue into creating data-driven cultures, to creating AI centers of excellence. And then it becomes a rolling stone gathering no moss. Maybe you can talk through a little bit. What is your process? So how do you start to have those conversations with the executive teams on not just what they're trying to accomplish, but, you know, maybe what AI means to them? And, you know, is it do I just look for tools that have AI in them or do I have a center of excellence? Like, how do you help them start to distill and go through this process? That's a very complex, loaded question. So thank you. Um, well, well, so have to keep you on your toes. <laughs> so I, I think there's there's two components, right? One is, does the leadership team have AI as a key level initiative for their growth and strategy? If so, then we're approaching this tactically. If not, then we have to get everyone on board. And so, if everyone's aligned, then we can have 
team level at the executive level, team level workshops and whiteboard sessions to really hone in on what does AI mean for you? What does AI look like? How do you, how mature do you want to be, right? Not everyone needs to be a Tesla or an Amazon. There can be just enablement tools, right? Uh, that leads into that build versus buy. And do I just use a software application that solves a specific problem? Can I leverage that for customer support and increase the efficacy of level one customer support reps by 20 to 40%, right? And so that's that's one component. The other, when there's friction, because if people don't understand AI, they might not want to adopt it, then it, le- then it has to stem from, let's start with education and let's do this on an individual level, right? Because no one wants to look foolish in a room. And so having one-on-one interviews, having these discussions that really help people calibrate and, and even ask me questions on what does this mean? How can I leverage this? That will lead into creating adherence and adoption. And then we can bring the team together to look more tactically at how can the organization be more effective and where do we want to first leverage this to drive greater insights, to drive revenue, to reduce cost. You're, it, it seems interesting that, um, I don't know if it was, it was purposeful, if it was, you're a very smart man, but like the background you got in your education and understanding the psychology of teams combined with all this technology, the two come together very well that you probably can facilitate some really interesting conversations and have people willing to be um, vulnerable about the things they don't know and that type of thing. It's very interesting, your background, bringing these conversations together. and. I don't think I realized it until about three to four years ago that this looped back to org psychology because ultimately or originally, I thought I was going to go into strategy or management consulting. I had a very heavy quantitative background in undergrad and graduate school, and I, I certainly enjoy math. I feel like I was a good data scientist when I was one. But it finally looped back around about three to four years ago, and I'll tell a little precursor story to it. Back in around 2011, 2012, when, well, to say 2011, when I believe it was HBR said data scientists is the sexiest title of the 21st century, 80% of models were not making it into production. And when you look, when you took a step back and looked at it, it was due to a lack of transition from data scientists to data engineers, that code had to be refactored, that there was no process for that implementation, that these models weren't scalable, that the architecture and hardware wasn't effective, that there weren't these tools like AutoML and MLOps that could help enable organizations to be more effective. So that was 2011 when we're seeing 80% of models not being successful. Today, 80% of models are still not successful, but we have really effective tools. We have great data scientists. We have great data engineers. So what's the reason? Well, the hypothesis is that it's a people issue and a process issue now. So it's really about organizational change management. And so that's where I realized that this loops back around to my background, because if we can change the culture to adopt this, to trust data, to trust AI, then we can rapidly accelerate. And now is the most prominent time in the history of the world for market cannibalization. Startups can cannibalize so much market share of large companies if they adopt an AI strategy. So in looking at adopting an AI strategy, how 
does that tie to becoming a data centric organization? Is it the same thing? Um, are they two different things that come together and are complementary? Great question. And it's so interesting at, talking with other uh, chief data officers around that and talking with other executives around that. I think the reality is that you cannot have one without the other. In a way, they're independent, right? Because if you look at chief data officer roles today, a lot of CDO roles are kind of the CIO role 20 years ago, where it's risk mitigation. Let's lock down data, security, compliance, master data management, governance, everything in that realm. But then there's a new tier of chief data officers that say, how do we be transformative with data? And so you have risk-averse and risk-prone executive leaders. And what we'll likely see in the next three to seven years are that split. And it might just be a chief data and chief analytics officer. But the chief data officer role right now is averaging about 18 months overall across organizations because organizations aren't really understanding how to effectively leverage them. And they they aren't honed in on what they want that CDO to do. Do they want to tackle the Maslow bottom hierarchy of needs with the security governance compliance? Or do we want to monetize our data and be more effective? And I think the CDO role will be much more focused on the data strategy, whereas a CAO type role, chief analytics officer, will be more focused on an AI strategy but the components of one are contingent on the other, right? AI cannot be effective without data, and data can't architect the right hardware, the right software stack, uh, the right applications without understanding what business problems we want to tackle using AI. That's interesting, thinking about the different roles that, as we move forward, will likely emerge in the majority of organizations, um, and definitely at the senior level the guidance on risk as well as opportunity is, makes sense. Taking a step down the next layer, which other roles does an organization, let's say we've now convinced someone or somebody's already convinced they're going to be data-centric and have an AI strategy, which other roles are critical in their organization? So 100% contingent on the organizational maturity and the data maturity. If there are not proper data pipelines, or if you're on Natiza and Teradata and some mainframe, right? Then if you want to leverage generative AI or deep learning, you're not going to be able to, right? You can do it as an R&D effort, but um, with that architecture, you can't. And data engineers were seeing, actually for the past about six years, we've seen a regression from organizations really wanting and hiring as many data scientists as possible to oh, we need data engineers or machine learning engineers. The, um, the, the job description is obfuscated. And what I think or what I believe is ultimately going to happen is we're seeing this increasingly fast progression of um, methodologies like auto machine learning, right? If I won't name any software companies, but there's quite a few in the space, right? And that means that there is the need of an, an awareness of garbage in, garbage out. If you pull, put data into a model and you haven't handled outliers, you handled haven't handled missiness of data, if data was encoded wrong when it was ingested, then the model you built is going to be wrong. And that can cause 
seven, eight, nine, ten figures, right? So it's very potentially problematic in that realm. But if we have data experts, people that really understand the data cleanliness aspect, then how much you actually need true data scientists like the model builders, not the data cleaners or statisticians, is going to diminish over time because LLMs can essentially write the code, AutoML can build and run that code. And so we're going to see a faster and faster progression where what we're really going to need are the data pipeline experts, the data cleaners, and then the subject matter experts that ensure all of the right um, features, all the right variables are included in that model for any prediction or classification that needs to occur. So this idea of cleaning up your data, um, so you're not putting garbage in, is will most organizations go and cleanse what they have? Or will they start with, okay, starting January 1st, 2024, only net new data goes into an AI project. What, how does that end up working? <laughs> well, if you remember from early 2000s, uh, big data was a, a buzzword for way, way, way too long, right? And mm-hmm. obsession with it, but no one had any idea how they were actually going to leverage it. It just was data's the new oil 23 years ago now. And I, the, the reality is organizations want to collect and leverage all that data and and for some things, let's say you're building uh, something with images, you might need millions of images, right? For self-driving cars, sure, you need a huge, gigantic data set. But for machine learning models, you don't. And more importantly, there's data sprawl and model sprawl, right? Data changes over time, models change over time. You may have new products that you didn't have a year or five years ago. You may have new regions that you're selling into. And so the components of the customer base and the representation of that data changes over time. So we're often seeing models needing to be retrained every six to 12 months. And so if that's the case, then what is the point of building models on five, 10 years worth of data? So a lot of organizations want to have all of this data, want to leverage all this data. And for some things like large language models, it could be effective. But for a lot of things, it doesn't really matter because what we're really trying to identify is who is our customer or what is the security risk today, right? It's not what was it 10 years ago. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. So what? where do you see things going over the next year as organizations start to deploy AI? Maybe don't think of the Teslas and the Amazons because they're outliers, but the the average Fortune 500, where will they be using AI? We'll probably see two different components. We'll see data science probably continue to perpetuate in the same way it's been. And the reality is, in almost every organization today, data science is more or less an R&D effort because those models aren't productionized, right? Or very few are. Uh, if you change that to 50% of models or 80% of models are productionized, that's a monumental shift. But that would require uh, an an AI champion, someone that's really driving this and articulating uh, the wins that the team's having, educating the other teams on what the art of the possible is and having them bring their use cases and needs to them. So unless there's an internal educator and a champion evangelizing that, then data scientists are still Harry Potter in a broom closet and will let you out when we need something, right? (laughs) Um, And so what... The other flip side of that is, especially with things like LLMs, is we're going to see 
software applications that will solve a specific problem, right? Right now, there's a large focus on generalization, right? Feed in all your data and we can maybe answer something. But the reality is, let's say I have a sales team and I just want to know what I should do next based on all of the email conversations with a customer. Well, I can ask an LLM that, and that makes me as an individual hyper-effective. Or if I'm a customer service agent and it's transcribing the conversation in real time and it can prognose what to recommend next or what to ask next, that makes me more effective, right? And so it's going to be much more of an enablement or augmentation tool or in some places replacement, right? And that will, I think, be the primary driver where it will facilitate in organizational functions from marketing to sales to finance to operations to customer service, uh, whereas the data science team will be handling the hyper-complex task or the R&D type efforts that are pipe dreams or something that might increase 10x, 100x, 1,000x potential revenue or cost savings. But again, it does require making sure that you have the right communication experts embedded in that team to really drive that cross-functionally. So I'd love to delve into something. And um, as you were talking, you were talking about a salesperson example. And they could, if in today's world, and most companies I've worked in, we use something called Clary, which is a Salesforce plugin. And you can ask it stuff and it will kind of predict some revenue, some um, you know, like, what will your pipeline be six months from now? It's kind of a predictive analytics tool. How is that different than querying a large language model or using AI? So I, I think it's going to depend. Right now, Salesforce, and probably for the foreseeable future, if not forever, will continue to own the enterprise space. When you look at the Clary's Gong sales loft outreach, right, I was chief data officer at Revenue.io, which is play, plays in the same space. The, the difference between a Salesforce, and, and Salesforce is going in this direction with Einstein and whatnot as well, um, and um, the, the acquisition tableau and everything else, is right now things have been BI-focused, right? Here's what's occurred, and they're much more holistic. But if I take a step back as a, as a sales rep, right, or even running my own company, right, I still do sales, and... If there are a hundred tasks that are on my to-do list, instead of getting some report of saying the buyer intent of this person is an 80 versus 72, that's relative. What does that mean? Are they statistically significant difference or not? But if I have something that using large language models along combined with something like machine learning that says, hey, uh, we've ran through all your emails and conversations. We've seen your task list. Here's the top priorities that you need to do because, let's say, these accounts are at risk. These are likely to close. Um, so you need to email this person at this time. You need to call this person at this time. And to be able to prescribe, instead of taking away the deep thinking that Daniel Kahneman requires, right, um, in, in regards to thinking fast versus slow, to say, to have a decision maker that can augment us, right? So that I, as a sales rep, can be more effective in regards to conversations, right? And doing deeper dives with customers instead of getting decision fatigue from trying to decide what the heck to do next. That's going to be monumental. 
And so the the tooling is going to need to mature. Now, whether organizations purchase it or not is going to be relative on whether they see the value in it. But I know personally, for me, that's huge value. And because I have to make thousands of decisions per day, everyone does. And if we're having to make all those decisions, then anything that can help mitigate the number of decisions we're making so we can focus on the more important things, that's going to be game-changing. That makes perfect sense. So I'd like to shift over and talk about the IT teams a little bit. We've talked about the data teams, a little bit about the apps. Um, In IT, how is this whole, you know, craze around AI going to affect IT teams? Maybe both the environments they're managing, the skill sets they need to have, those types of things. On on one hand, I, I certainly hope it's more pointed, right, that whether we talk about logging of data and errors or implementations of new packages and patches, QA testing, um, all of those can be augmented or enabled through things like large language models. And if we can you know, help enable them to be more effective, it's, it's, it's the same thing, but take a step back, as, as, as doctors uh, with like x-rays or MRI images, right? If we can say, you need to focus on these 10 of 5,000 images because something seemed off, then that means that you can focus more time on really investigating those or spending more time with a patient. And I think it'll be the same thing with IT. If we can use these LLMs to point them in the right direction, it's going to be great. Now, we'll also see organizations that will look to um, remove some members, right? Because the, the biggest gap that I don't think the not even organizations, but the economy is preparing for is that large language models are going to be able to replace one through five years of experience in the majority of realms, right? I don't know if BDRs and SDRs will exist. I don't know if level one customer support will exist. I don't know if uh, level one and two IT will exist uh, five years from now. And, and it's because LMs can do this. And if as a expert, I know exactly what to query in three seconds, and get the results, then why am I going to hire someone for 60, 80, 120, 150K to do that, right? Um, because now you can use, you can reallocate that budget for software that does that. So the 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 bigger problem, and that becomes a, a twofold bigger problem, right? One is what happens to all the people getting out of school that want jobs um, in the space? And two, all of the pain and troubleshooting that we had as data architects, as data engineers, as data scientists, as IT support. And for people who have 10 to 20 years experience, the number of pains we experienced and problems and trials and tribulations that we went through, that's gone now, right? Because LMs can digest that large swaths of data to really identify that, which means the ability for the next generation to more effectively problem solve and really understand, like, how do you go sequence by sequence to tackle these problems and and identify the risk or identify the problem? That's kind of gone. And I'm hoping that education will start teaching more on critical thinking and problem solving as opposed to rote memorization. But it's going to be problematic for organizations in the next few years if we fully use software um, to automate out roles. I think that's pretty fascinating. I mean, in one way, it's a little scary, but, you know, change can be scary. If you were maybe pursuing a degree right now, whether you're coming out of college or you're mid-career and looking to fine-tune your skills for this space, what would you pursue? 
Oh, God. Me? Or do, what do I recommend? <laughs> what would you recommend? <laughs> um, so it, it, it's really interesting. I, I get asked a lot on, on LinkedIn um, for it to advise or mentor. And, you know, a lot of people wanted to get in the large language model space, but that stems essentially from natural language processing. And if we go even further back, that stems from communication and psychology and philosophy and how people effectively communicate and um, and it's hard. To, there's very few NLP experts out there, so there's fewer LLM experts out there. And and it's hard to say, yeah, you can jump 10 to 20 years and do LLMs, right? Now, there can be builders of that, right? I could, I could probably teach a 10-year-old to build a machine learning random forest model because it's a couple lines of code in Python. The difficulty isn't in that. Um, it's, it's, again, in that critical thinking and problem solving and subject matter expertise. So I foresee that the more well-rounded people are in regards to take classes in whatever verticals you're interested, but also take business classes, take communication classes, take psychology classes, sociology, um, understand how we operate as people, how we operate, um, how people operate in communication between one another. And, um, and then the importance of understanding back end, uh, whether you want data architecture, data engineering, machine learning, or, or, or something in the realm, the tooling is going to effectively change, right? There's not going to have to be the mathematical experts that there have been today. Some people will pursue it because it's a passion, but that's going to change. So there's, while we have, I think it's 1.2 million data scientists shortage still, that's probably going to be reduced more and more because we're not going to need them. We'll have AutoML to do a lot of that. But the data cleaning experts, my God, we need billions of them, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and yeah, so if I too long didn't read or didn't listen, uh, I, I think the more that you have some technical aptitude to understand underlying how things work under the hood with a very business-focused and communication-focused mindset and the willingness to adapt and change that will set you night and day above anyone else makes sense my i, I keep thinking about my husband is a was a coo in tech companies you know building supply chains and stuff for making hardware over the years and he wanted to get in this space and he's a data scientist and he has an interesting combination he works for amazon in the not AWS, but Amazon, where you have billions of things that need to show up at our doorsteps at certain times, and you have to do predictive models of will it arrive today or tomorrow, and all those things. And the reason they really like him is because he has a lot of business experience on which questions to ask. What are the worries that a business might have around um, their operations? It's not just be able to answer questions. And so that, like you say, that combination of some technical aptitude, you know, Python, notebooks, that stuff, but also what kind of problems do we actually need to solve at Amazon that will help Amazon is why he's so successful with what he does. And it's very similar to what you're talking about. And there's a, there's a theory in psychology called Johari's window, right? Um, it generally means uh, in regards to individuals of what I know about me, a two by two matrix of what, let's say, um, between me and you about me. So I know things about me that you don't know. Um, you know things about me that I don't know or I don't realize. Um, and then two more in the matrix. And um, 
and and when you get into that bottom quadrant of the unknown unknowns of like things I don't know and you don't know about myself, that becomes problematic. And if we look at that at a scaled level of enterprises, if the entire data science team has never looked at economics or supply chain, then they build a model and they don't look at shortages in industry or travel times being lengthened and they don't understand why. Mm-hmm, and, um, exactly. and or, or, or it just in regards to um, social network analysis and uh, um, the spread of, of COVID and whatnot. So the more well-rounded, the more you read in anything you want, whether fiction, nonfiction, um, the more you talk with people in every vertical in industry, um, just about what are you passionate about? What do you love? The more that you are able to make sure that there aren't blind spots when you build these models. It makes sense. Yeah. So as we start to tie up, I, I, I'm curious, what is the biggest success with AI that you've seen so far that you found just inspirational or exciting? Oh, no. <laughs> I love to surprise people with questions know. sometimes. Uh, <laughs> oh, biggest ever. Um, so uh, I'm going to gi- I'll give... I'll give my three most excited, right? I, okay, I can probably fair. think of, I, I could probably, I, could, <laughs> I might be able to think of something that was like, I, I know huge wins that I've had, but um, I, in regards to what I'm most excited about are three veins, right? First, this, this is not in sequence, um, but first is self-driving cars uh, in Colorado. Everyone who drives a Subaru drives 20 under in the left lane. And, 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 and yeah, I'm a that, Colorado yeah. driving Subaru driver. <laughs> <laughs> For real. <laughs> and, and my mom just said she's, she lives in Georgia, but she just said, I'm about to get a Subaru. And I go, oh, great. Okay. Um, there's, there's just an innate nature to, to drive those slower. Um, but, but so I think in regards to, you know, Uber and Lyft did great with mitigating uh, drunk driving risk, but the the safety features of this, the fact that if people do have to or do want to go to work in the future as opposed to work from home, traffic will essentially not exist, right? Because there's mathematical models that show someone just cutting across five lanes of traffic from the left lane to the exit um, and everyone having to slow down to 20 miles an hour can back things up 30 minutes to 60 minutes, right? Um, just something so minute as that. And so the intrinsic safety features of that, much less saving people's lives, um, will make people's lives much easier. And that also will mean that with America, as large as it is, it grants the opportunity for travel, right? And like you can work from your car or you can, you know, go on vacation, um, you know, somewhere for the weekend and take naps while you're going, right? Um, and, And spend more time with those you care about. So that's really fascinating to me. The second and third... They, they go hand in hand in how they'll work, but they're very different. The, the second is personalized education. Now, I don't have kids, but if you remember Bush's No Child Left Behind Act, um, you know, there, there's, there's students that are at the upper echelon of the curve and, and those behind and a, and a lot in the middle. And the unfortunate piece is that unless you're in the 95th and higher percentile or the bottom maybe 10th percentile, then you can largely be ignored, right? Because they ha- teachers have to spend their time in regards to those two components. And when we can get to personalized education, if I struggle with a certain type of math problem, and so the questions I get uh, are honed in more towards 
that or the way that it's taught to me can be rephrased and manipulated in a different way that I understand. That's huge um, because that means that the kids who are were, you know, a generation or two generations ago, fearful of reading or fearful of math. Now they don't have to be. And that's really, really exciting because it opens up the doors to people really being able to pursue their passions. The third and what I'm most passionate about is the healthcare space. So it will be the same thing in regards to personalized medicine, right? Right now, doctors do not have time for patients. Um, it, it's the unfortunate aspect of, uh, we'll say insurance. And the fact that, and, and because they don't have time, they don't get to investigate and understand a person holistically. And when we also think about data, the data is cardiology and oncology and your GP, and that data does not talk to one another. But if we can get a holistic picture of an individual, then that means we can diagnose and prognose and repair much faster, which means people will have better, healthier, and happier lives. And that is the most exciting thing for me because that's what I think AI should be. We should enable people to almost go back to the, the Roman times of philosophers where people get to spend time talking and thinking and having fun as opposed to working 80, 100 hours a week, right? I, I may enjoy it, but I don't think everyone does. And I don't think people should be forced to do that if they have other passions they want to pursue. I love it. So Matt, thank you so much for taking time um, for this show. I think that based on interactions with some of the other guests we've had, there's probably going to people, be people who listen who'd like to reach out to you. Um, what is the best way to connect with you? Whether I know you said you do get a lot of outreach on mentors, you know, maybe on that side, but also executives who maybe are looking to want to talk to somebody like you about their AI strategies. I think that's a, a scaled spectrum to right, uh, um, we'll just say a mini micro pitch, but that can be everything from one-on-one -on -one coaching through workshops, through full data-driven transformations, right? Um, and, and some organizations just need a handful of hours advising. Some really want like a fractional CDO that can help guide them. And, um, and, and so I, I, it's not just myself. I, I do have a team um, that can help in regards to all these components to specialize in a variety of verticals. Um, for me, yeah, the, the two best ways to reach out are, um, we'll say LinkedIn, uh, Matt Fornito. Uh, it should be LinkedIn slash in slash Matt Fornito. Or um, my work email right now, uh, one of my companies is Tech Inc. I-N-K. So Matt at Tech Inc. I-N-K dot com or dot I-O. I'm sorry. Matt at techinc.io. And I know on LinkedIn, you're the AI guy, I think is the first thing that pops up next to you. So that's a good way to know that you have the correct Matt Fornito if there are more than one, which there probably are. I was are. fortunate enough to get that uh, <laughs> name from NVIDIA um, uh, executives themselves. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a lucky person. That's awesome. Hey, um, I know you have a lot of experience in the space and I appreciate, you know, while it's new to some, it's been around for a while for others and you wrapping up your knowledge for this conversation has been great and i really look forward to continuing conversations with you in the future thank you so much for having me i appreciate it Molly. thanks for listening to data unchained powered by hammerspace to learn more visit hammerspace.com if you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com. Mm -hmm.